This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Meg Languages. Meg Languages has been featured internationally on BBC News, SBS, and ABC. We partner with schools in Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States, reaching more than 50,000 students every week. Meg Languages is offering a free demo of their Mandarin and Spanish language programs. Find out how on the Meg Languages Ed Curation vendor page. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. He used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Christy Hemingway, and today we're talking about global citizenship and the global competencies that support it. Lottie Dowling is an international expert in the area of global citizenship and has worked for the last 20 years in education as a school practitioner and professional learning leader on the regional, national, and global level. She's worked as an educator in six countries around the globe, and in spite of the time difference, she agreed to speak with us and share her experience and expertise. I asked her to start out by just defining these terms of global citizenship and global competence that have become educational buzzwords. As you say, these terms get thrown around a lot and used interchangeably. Um, So global citizenship and global competence, you know, there's definitely a huge overlap in them. I think the key difference, global citizenship is this idea that we are a citizen of the world, beyond our sort of immediate um, cultural group or our country. Uh, And the idea that, you know, being part of a citizen of the world, we have rights and we have responsibilities to that. Uh, We are interconnected with people of all countries and cultures. Global competence is a set of competencies, uh, knowledge, values, skills and attitudes that we need to live and thrive, uh, survive, but beyond that, thrive in a globalised world. And I would argue that anyone that strongly develops global competence uh, would see themselves as a global citizen as well. So we can use them interchangeably. Um, There are sort of specific models that exist for both. How connected is this idea to the fact that we've become such a global community because of our connectedness through the internet in the last 20 years? Yeah, great question. Well, uh, it's really come through this idea of our world becoming increasingly globalized and digital technologies is obviously a huge part of that. Um, When we look at something like 21st century skills, um, these terms are sort of a response to a rapidly changing world, a world where our students, our educators, our schools need different sets of competencies. But our world is rapidly changing and we're going through the fourth industrial revolution, which, you know, has a strong connection to obviously technologies and digital technologies and how that is rapidly changing the world that we live in. And we're seeing that we are more interconnected and more interdependent than we have ever been before. 
we've always known that we're interdependent and interconnected. You look at global supply chains, you look at, um, you know, trade, you look at um, just even like human migration, which is on the increase. But when you look at something like COVID-19, we see how something that happens in one part of the world directly impacts another part of the world significantly. And also the flip side of that is that, we can be working with teams on other side of the world uh, to, to positive, positively impact um, not just our own communities, uh, other communities and other places um, on the other side of the planet as well. One thing that was really encouraging to me in the last year and a half, if you can find maybe an upside, is that we experienced a crisis that required a global response, which is everybody is talking about it as unprecedented. And I don't think that it necessarily is unprecedented because those kinds of things have happened before. But we have, to varying degrees, succeeded in providing a global response to this pandemic. You know, not completely unified, but we are, we have been able to come together to provide a response and to share resources and to communicate effectively between countries. And so on that, on that one hand, <laughs> I feel like it's been encouraging, but it's also interesting because I'm thinking as I listen to you talk, I'm thinking about this supply chain phenomenon that we're experiencing right now in the United States. There are shortages on everything right now. The response to this is, you know, it shows us the importance of producing and buying locally. And this brings in this term glocal, right? Local focus for global impact. But yeah, absolutely. What we are definitely seeing the impact of, of you know, globalization very readily. And, and I mean, even to that point of um, things like fast fashion, right? Why does it matter if we, oh, it's, it's just a cheap t-shirt, it's just $5 from a, you know, a high street shop. Um, but what happens if, you know, all of us are aware of where that was made, the resources it took to make it, the conditions of the people that made that thing, um, the carbon footprint of that to get to us. I, I would actually say that um, it, it is definitely, there's huge room for growth around everybody's understanding of what globalization actually is and how deeply embedded it is in our lives. We're constantly kind of making choices um, every day you know, are linked to globalization. And um, hopefully if we're global citizens and we're developing global competence, um, we're aware of those, we're increasingly aware of those, and we can be making better choices, conscious choices around um, making yeah, positive impacts on our planet. You mentioned 21st century skills, which is another one of those terms that we started using probably about 10 years ago. And I'm wondering, are these global competencies are they just another word for what we were calling 21st century skills or have they evolved somehow? Yeah, I think they, I think there's obviously overlap. They're very similar. I would argue that you could be developing 21st century skills without a global lens necessarily, um, but with global competence, it's very firmly rooted in that. And um, a part of that, um, you know, with the framework, uh, there's a few frameworks, is the intercultural dialogue that is a strong part of that which of course comes with you know interacting with other people from other countries and cultures 
which you could have as part of 21st century skills, but you might not necessarily have. So again, it's just a response to our increasingly globalized world. Um, you know, I think there's obviously the benefits, uh, there's the perils, uh, and um, we've got the two sides of the coin and we just have to be aware of both. Yeah. Is there a great, kind of agreed upon list of these? Because when we first started addressing 21st century skills, there were um, linked standards to those 21st century skills. And there was this list of here's what they are. Um, does that exist for global conference? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of um, frameworks out there, or there's a few frameworks out there for global competence. Um, the Asia Society have one. Uh, and I believe World Savvy have one as well. I think the most um, well-known one came out quite recently in the last few years. Um, PISA, the international testing body, actually included global competence as a subject area. Uh, and so they have a, a full framework and they actually have assessment for global competence because they used it to assess uh, countries and cultures in 2018. Uh, so with global competence, whichever framework you look at, you're essentially kind of seeing the four areas. So four areas or domains of global competence. And the first one is? Uh, the first area we're seeing is the investigating piece, the knowledge piece, the learning about the piece, learning about the world, learning about other countries and cultures. And you could do that sitting in the library with a library book, right? We don't necessarily need to be out in the world or on our um, devices. We might learn about it on, on a website, um, but we're not necessarily interacting. Part one, learning about the world outside your walls, your town and your own tribe. Now for part two. The second part is about perspectives, understanding different perspectives um, and appreciating, you know, and, uh, you know, as well It's a positive thing, looking at them and looking at values around that. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? The current public conversations in the United States around political, economic, health-related, and racial issues indicates a general and maybe even dangerous lack of this particular competency. It's a relief to know that it's being addressed and taught in our classrooms. Uh, the third one is around communicating. So we've got the intercultural dialogue where we're interacting with someone from another country or culture and we're learning together um, about, you know, their country, their culture, but we're in a shared space together. Um, having open, effective dialogue. So that, that communication piece is the third piece. And obviously languages education has a strong anchor in that section. Hello. Namaste. Sayonara. Arrivederci. And then the fourth piece is taking action. So allowing our students to take action. Um, and I would argue that this is the piece that is least done um, around schools. I think we're seeing it done more. I think more educators are becoming more comfortable with allowing the space, providing the pedagogies that support this, like, you know, project-based learning, inquiry-based learning. Um, but also, I think we're seeing this huge movement um, around the world uh, with student movements as well, things like Fridays for the Future. And students are, you know, using their agency to take action as well. 
Again, this is really being spearheaded by those digital technologies, being able to connect, um, look at like for Fridays for the Future, for example, Greta Thunberg's um, movement. Um, you can go on their website, you can find all the groups, any part of the globe you can connect in. And that's what our young people are doing is they're not waiting to leave school to take action. They're taking action on, um, you know, things that are important to them. Yeah, they're very... They're very inspired activists and we just need to give them the opportunities. So we have listeners from all over the world on this podcast, but I'd love for just a minute for you to focus in a little bit on our American listeners, our American educators, because we're a big country (laughs) and English is the primary language. Um, across the United States, and there are more diverse parts of the country where the where the diversity is embraced, and that we um, love the fact that we're multilingual. But for the most part, we're a huge English-speaking com- country, <laughs> and there's a lot of people who don't intend to ever travel outside the borders of this country. So it's sometimes a little bit of a tough sell to. Mm the American populace and even some American educators as to why we need to be teaching global competencies Mm. Um, Mm. and not just in terms of second language studies, but, but the whole um, all, all four parts that you just addressed, why convince an American educator, why this is important. Mm. Well, um, how we spent our last year, we've spent it Zooming with our friends, our family, our colleagues in different parts of the country and the globe. And that is the future of work is that our young people will be working in global teams. They already are. Uh, I work in a global team. I'm sure you work in a global team. And uh, we're connected with people in other countries and other cultures um, all the time. They might go travel for work, uh, but they might even from their living room need to use their intercultural understanding, their global competence to work with people from other countries, with customers, with colleagues. Um, And then, of course, you know, we have friends and and family. Um, We are seeing migration on the rise. We have Asia is rising. We have the huge middle class growing in India and China and other countries as well. And they are migrating to other countries. Um, And we're having, you know, obviously migration from other places as well. Our countries are becoming increasingly diverse. Our communities are becoming increasingly diverse. So we need, we all need uh, these skills because they are the skills. I would not even say they're the skills of the future. We hear that all the time. Oh, they're the skills of the future. We need them. I think we need them now. Apparently, Netflix is um, spending a huge amount of their budget on uh TV series from other countries and cultures because of the markets within Western societies. Our young people are more interested in, you know, K-pop, for example, Korean pop is, you know, increasingly um, of interest or, you know, look at some of the TV shows that we're we're watching. They have, you know, their links to other countries and cultures, not just Western culture. It's true. My son and his friends, I have a son in his 20s, he and his friends have recently gotten really interested in this Mon- Mongolian throat singing band. Oh, Hungai? Right now? Yeah, I think so. It'll be Hungai. Yeah, Ooh. they're amazing. I've they're seen them popular. live in Beijing. They are amazing. And they've actually traveled a lot of music festivals in the world. Yes, yes. A good, check them out if you haven't, if you don't know them. 
Yeah. And, and I can attest to that because in the job that I'm in working in my little home office here, I work with people from all over the world. Like you, I'm talking to you, you're in Australia. So yeah, it's true. You can hardly escape it in very many jobs. Even if you're just working retail, if you're behind a counter somewhere, you are going to encounter somebody from another part of the world, hands down. Yes. You just will. Yeah. So I have another question then to that same, to those same educators who are after this past year, especially, you know, feeling overwhelmed. And they're the general classroom teacher is being asked on a pretty regular basis to add more and more and more standards that they're attending to. So for example, um, you know, say you're a middle school social studies teacher, you're also being asked to integrate social emotional learning into your classroom. You're being asked to integrate STEAM. You might be asked to integrate the arts. You might be asked, and then you're going to be asked to accommodate for the diverse learners in your room, for the English language learners, for the identified kiddos who might be on the spectrum or might have physical disabilities, you have to accommodate for them. And so they're listening and wondering, how am I supposed to layer on now this global lens as well on top of everything else that I'm doing? Can you give a granular picture of what this looks like in a classroom? Absolutely. And first and foremost, you know, a huge respect to all of our educators, not just in this last year, but to be an educator, you wear many hats. Here in Australia, they call it the crowded curriculum. They say, you know, it's this, you know, too many things for us to kind of be trying to fit in. So I think the first thing to be aware of is with this work is it's not a subject. It's not something that we're adding in as, you know, we've got to find an extra 10 minutes every day. It's simply a lens that we use over what we're teaching already. So we look at, uh, for example, we look at what we're teaching, let's say in geography, you're doing river systems, um, looking at those river systems and thinking, you know, how can I uh, ask, include, um, instead of doing these three river systems from a similar place, let's include you know, two from one place and two more from somewhere else. Um, or ask my students for homework or in class to research uh, river systems with the similar aspects to the thing that we're looking at um, in a different global context. They're going off and they're learning. Um, the other thing I think that's really overlooked as well as the resourcing that we use in classrooms as well. And this is where our teacher librarians are fantastic. Um, if we are doing something like, you know, autobiographies um, or biographical writing in literature, which is, you know, a unit that many teachers teach in the English around the world or um, language arts, uh, why not include books about people from other countries and cultures and their experiences, you know, what it's like to be a refugee or what it's like um, to, um, you know, migrate from somewhere, what it's like to um, live in a different um, environment and country and culture and, and have different challenges. So our resource selection, it doesn't mean that we have to change what we're teaching. We can look at um, just tweaking slightly uh, the topics that we already have to include a global lens. There's a couple of platforms, things like uh, the Global Oneness Project or uh, Project Explorer, Videos for Change. There are lots of platforms already that are out there that are kind of addressing this work. And the great thing about the internet, of course, is that, you know, they're up to date. 
they're modern, they're accessible, um, and that students, uh, it's, it's their language. So it's really just a matter of sitting down with a unit that you have upcoming that you're going to be teaching and doing a sort of audit to find out where are those openings or even maybe a few substitutions of things that will give a more global perspective to this learning. And I would encourage, you know, as always, sit down with your colleagues and talk about it together and look at, I was recently working with a school in California and I said, who have you got on staff? What countries and cultures have you got on staff? And I said, oh, and they made this wonderful connection. They said, oh, we've got, you know, so-and-so who's, um, he was Hispanic. And they said, oh, he could actually help us with that unit and talk about this aspect with that unit, you know people are an amazing resource they're amazing first-hand resource and I would say they're one of the most valuable resources for uh, global learning that is constantly overlooked so getting a parent in and saying can you talk about what it was like growing up next to a river or you know in a different place I think the other thing that you've said too that's so important is this idea around sustainability with this work Um, just take it step by step and make sure that it's not overwhelming sustainable And what you'll probably see is that you make a few of these changes, the students will respond amazingly, and that will inspire you to make further changes. If you're looking for a really exciting and authentic way to bring global, multicultural, and world language learning into your classroom in an easy and impactful way, our sponsor today, Meg Languages, has a really unique approach. This is Emily Hopkins, Client Solutions Manager for Meg Languages. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At MEG, it is our mission to create global citizens through language and intercultural experiences. We believe such experiences will lead to a more interconnected, peaceful, and empathetic world for all. Learn more about MEG languages at edcuration.com. I'm wondering if you have any favorite examples of educators providing students with these kind of global perspectives. I'm lucky enough to work with schools um, in different parts of the world who want to build global competence more broadly across the, the curriculum. There was a school here in Australia. This was when I was working in a different role, but there was a school here in Australia that had actually partnered with a school over in Indonesia. So it was actually a school collaboration project. But what they did is they um, were doing a science unit. And, you know, I think, you know, that's an area that we don't necessarily think about global learning, but they went down, they mapped their flora and fauna in their local area. Um, they actually embedded like a, they worked with a council, embedded a QR code, and they sent those QR codes to their sister school in Indonesia, but they were also included in things like school newsletters. And then people could beep them and they could get a little video of that student introducing uh, the local flora and fauna, including indigenous uh, um, native plants as well. I love this example. You've got global connections, technology, environmental education, digital arts, science, and project-based learning all integrated together. So good. I think also with global learning, there's some natural areas, right? Like geography is a natural area. Literature is a natural area. And I think here in Australia, like folk tales from around the world is um, a pretty sort of standard unit that you do. Um, so those kind of naturally lend themselves. But I always get excited when I see schools um, building, yeah, these initiatives into areas that you don't necessarily expect. 
On the other side of that coin, one of the most obvious areas of focus for global competency is second language learning. It's something we do backward here in the U.S., delaying world language classes until middle school or even high school, long after students' prime language learning years are past. In fact, only 20% of K-12 students in the U.S. study a second language at all, ever, compared to 92% in Europe. This, despite the fact that the demand for both white and blue-collar jobs requiring bilingual workers has doubled in the last five years. Learning a language has lots of benefits, like, you know, your neurological pathways, um, there are increased connectivity between them. Um, Students have shown to have increased problem-solving capabilities and creativity. Beyond that, um, when we start to learn about another language and a culture, we we build a connection with that language and culture that we never lose. And no matter where you are in the world, you always have that connection. And and here in Australia, where I am now, um, if I hear Chinese being spoken Mandarin, I go up and have a, a, a ni hao, I go up and say hi, and I have a chat to that person. And, and it's the number of connections when I've been down the park with my little boy talking to a Chinese parent um, has been beautiful. Um, the other thing that sometimes gets a bit lost that's a huge benefit with language learning is that when we learn about another country or culture it makes us reflect on our own country and culture and then beyond that you have this connection to this person of this other country and culture that you always will have you know you'll get into a taxi and you'll realize that you can have a conversation so much of the kind of hate and racism in our world comes from this misunderstanding around what culture is and, um, you know, what defines us culturally. So learning a language um, is obviously about learning how to speak that language, you know, all the benefits of that. But beyond that, when you're learning a language, not on an app, but when you're learning a language with another person and in a class with a, a teacher from that country and culture, you're observing all these things that are cultural constructs like hierarchy, power, distance, um, the way that gender is expressed. And so you start to understand that your understanding of those things is just a a cultural understanding of those things. They're not right and wrong. It's just different. And you bring that knowledge and experience to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, um, the hope is that we can have a growing understanding of why this is essential for us in the United States. And we're becoming more of a multilingual society than we ever have been in the past. But I think that there are still a lot of Americans digging in their heels And instead of embracing that opportunity, um, kind of going the other direction and refusing to embrace that opportunity and wanting to insist that everybody, um, you know, speak English, even though there are so many academic and cognitive and social advantages to being multilingual. And and I think, too, Chrissy, a big part of it is valuing the languages and the experience that our immigrants bring with them as well and, and seeing that as a positive thing. I know what you mean, because I lived in Europe for several, many years, and I I speak French, and I lived in France for a long time. And it's been so long that I've been back in the States, I don't get the opportunity to use my French very much. So if I hear someone speaking French, I will absolutely go up and talk to them just for the pleasure of being able to use my French. But also... There's a teeny tiny part of me that wants a French person to know that there are Americans who speak French. (laughs) Yes. 
Exactly. Exactly. Their experience here, right? They don't find people who can actually speak French or who are willing to engage (laughs) with them in their own language in this country very often. And what amazed me, I mean, I learned Chinese um, as an adult when I worked in an international school in Beijing, China, and I am pretty much tone deaf and Chinese is a tonal language. So it took me a long time to learn. (laughs) But I was so humbled by the consistent um, positivity and and I'd say even gratitude, the the kindness of Chinese people people saying thank you for bothering to learn our language you know they were so encouraging and it was so lovely to be so encouraged um by them they were just gorgeous when they heard you sort of terribly stumbling through sentences and they'd have no idea probably what I was saying particularly in the beginning but they were just so um lovely about the fact that you were trying and that you wanted to communicate and connect with them and that's what they appreciated they understood that you were making the effort and that's what mattered I will never forget this experience I had when my children went to a dual language immersion elementary school Spanish English Um, I desperately wanted them to grow up bilingual. And we were at one of their little performances, like their fall performance. The kids whose first language was Spanish were performing the English parts of the performance. And the kiddos whose first language was English were performing the Spanish part of of the performance. And when the English kids performing in Spanish got up to do their their thing, this woman started to cry next to Mm. me. And I handed her a tissue out of my purse and I just like put my hand on her arm and said, are are you okay? And in very broken English, she explained to me that she was so, I'm tearing up. She was so deeply touched, validated to hear these little Anglo kids performing in Spanish. Yeah. Because we're trying. And it's not about getting it perfect, all right? And that is the point of language learning is to communicate and to connect. In thinking about global citizenship and competencies, we have to recognize that so much of this connectivity is digital and it's made available through increasingly sophisticated global technologies. So it brings with it the accompanying concern over the safety and privacy of our students. I wanted to know if Lottie had any tips or advice regarding digital safety. Yes, absolutely. I would encourage, you know, if you're going to have a global exchange, if you're going to do something like global collaboration, if you're going to connect with a class in another part of the world or a person in another part of the world, um, that you talk about that and you talk about, you know, cyber safety and make that part of the learning experience. We obviously have to have protocols and rules that we're following, you know, the the nine Ps, things around passwords, photographs, personal identity. Um, It becomes harder when you've got, you know, groups of students working maybe on projects and things. And that's why using um, learning management systems um, that are somewhat closed, you know, they're not just open to the world. We're not just jumping, letting our kids jump on something like Facebook. We're going on something that is closed, like a Flipgrid, um, where we can moderate or we know it's being moderated. We're seeing that dialogue. We're seeing the content. We're approving that content um, before it goes up. So many educators got onto Flipgrid as a, um, a tool for learning. Um, 
I've got a little game on there called the Global High Five where kids jump on and they put five clues about where they're living in the world, five generic clues. Um, and you can see kids from all over the world using, you know, playing that game. Um, it's all moderated, of course. So, you know, and content and comments are moderated as well. Um, Cyberbullying is a huge concern, of course. So, again, choosing platforms that content is moderated is really important. Mm, yeah. Okay. Thanks. That's super helpful. Um, one more question. As we are moving more and more toward a global community, what are we seeing? What are we seeing in the realm of, of mass adoption of global citizenship and global competence and corresponding standards? Mm, yeah, great question. Well, um, we are seeing a huge, the, the huge kind of piece that we're seeing is that PISA, who do the international testing, reading, maths and science, um, they've been the traditional core subjects. They are starting to introduce um, a, a variety of soft skills being assessed across different years. And in 2018, they assess global competence across all the countries that they do their normal assessment across. And I think that this um, is a real stake in the ground to say because it's international testing and countries are already doing that PISA testing, I think that that is probably the biggest, most encouraging thing that is happening. And I do think that there is a growing movement. Um, and some of it is, you know, in response to, um, I think, COVID-19 with the push to people online. So we have seen a growing awareness of the possibilities using digital technologies to do global learning as well and we are just at the beginning of that so I would be so interested looking back in five years and ten years what comes from this um, we are seeing more educators connecting in global communities as well on things like Twitter and Facebook groups and um, Clubhouse is an app um, where they're connecting and collaborating and getting ideas as well. So it's not just learning in the classroom, it's also professional learning. And this just seems like the logical progression of our current focus on diversity, equity and inclusion, which is it's just taking diversity one step further versus, you know, diversity, meaning just our school or our community, but worldwide diversity. It's an embracing of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and when I do this work with schools, um, this whole school model for global competence, we look at the curriculum, we look at resources, we look at community engagement, we look at the school environment, the digital environment. We look at um, their language programs and how to kind of strengthen and promote those. We look at the school diversity and in inclusion. So we look at it through different lenses. Mm -hmm. And so the DI. DEJI um, work is is very much part of this as well. Absolutely. Okay. What is the J? Justice has been more recently included um, as one of the new ones. So we see DEI and we are starting to see DEJI. Okay. As well. Okay. Thank you for keeping me up to date on that. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many things to keep up to date with. I'm constantly learning. So say just a teeny bit about your work with schools, because are you available if there was an educator listening who thought, oh, gosh, yeah. we'd love to work with Lottie? Yeah, I love working with schools and um, I feel very blessed to be able to do this work. So, yeah, I work with schools. I go in and I co-create an action plan with them. It's very much um, driven by the school. 
we sit down, we look at the school context, we create, I show them the frameworks, we um, do a self-assessment of the school on the frameworks and we create an action plan together that they decide and they decide on the goals, they decide on the periods of time um, and it's very personalised and it has to be because, you know, I'm working with a school in California, at, you know, one day and then I'm working with a little regional Victoria, Victoria's estate in Australia another day um, and and the school up the road from that school is completely different as well so it has to be if we're talking about personalizing learning we have to make sure that you know that the initiatives that we're adopting for schools are also uh, reflecting that in, in themselves as well in the personalized. You can find Lottie Dowling on LinkedIn and Twitter linked in the episode notes along with a few research documents and her blogs and articles on global citizenship, global competency, and second language acquisition. You'll also find links to help you learn more about MEG languages. A reminder to our listeners that today's episode is sponsored by MEG languages. Dr. Martin Rex Ketsiora, Superintendent of Moreno Valley Unified School District in California said, these opportunities that we give students only helps them make better choices and know other cultures as they grow and learn through the grade levels. You can learn more about MEG languages at EdCuration. Simply click the Connect to Vendor button to learn more about our programs and schedule your Mandarin or Spanish demo. And while you're at EdCuration chatting with MEG languages, don't forget to check out our certified EdTrustee micro-credential program that allows you to try resources before you buy and influence the future of learning. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful if you would take 30 seconds to rate and review us wherever you listen. This helps assure that interested listeners can find us and that we continue to show up every week with more interesting conversations and information on the Ed Curation Podcast.